I've been known to lose a few things in my life. A few reality shows, a game show or two, and, of course, a congressional race myself. And when you get as good at losing as I have, you come to realize that losing often teaches the best lessons. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon welcomes a fellow former congressional candidate, fresh off a much closer defeat than my own. Republican Anna Paulina Luna came far closer in her race against incumbent Democrat Congressman Charlie Crist than most pundits expected. While she's accepted her own defeat, why is she not yet willing to accept President Trump's? What lessons did she learn from her own race? Where does she see room for progress or compromise in the coming divided government? And through the lens of a former congressional candidate, I'll ask her, how the heck are we going to get along? Anna Paulina Luna, thank you so much for being with us uh, this week. What a week it has been um, for you, I'm sure, also. And <laughs> I have a little bit of experience being in a similar situation to you. How have you, how have you been this past week? I mean, so obviously, you know, kind of running a successful campaign in general, whether you win or lose, is in itself a thousand percent all of your time and energy. So I think the last couple of days after the election was over, I literally slept just because I was deprived on sleep and like normal nutrition. Um, but then it just went from that to really what's happening with the national election. So I realized that, you know, I do still love politics and I still love this country. And so I've really been using, I think, my social media platform as a way to get information to the people, but then also to clear disinformation. And I think that there's a lot of that going around right now. Did you, I mean, just to shoot the shit for a second, was Wednesday yeah. morning not the weirdest day of your life? Just it, <laughs> I, I remember waking up Wednesday morning after my election campaign was over and mine was not nearly as close as yours was. So I knew well in advance that I probably was not going to win, but I still worked my ass off and I know you did too. Yeah. Wednesday morning, I woke up and I went, oh crap, I have nothing to do. Like literally nothing to do. <laughs> I called my communications director. I said, you want to go to a movie or something? <laughs> <laughs> I Wasn't literally did it. It's so weird. And it's funny that you say that because I'm the type of person where I really do have to have a million things going on for me to feel that I'm being productive. And so I was really flourishing in the campaign environment, but then I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? Like I spent all the last like eight months basically meeting with people every single day or calling people and really too, from my perspective, and I'm sure it was for you too, I had a really grassroots campaign. So like I put a ton of work into it and then I woke up and it was just like, well, now what do I do now? But right. I found that it Your was whole great. purpose in life <laughs> yeah, the past changed. year <laughs> is all of a sudden like, now what? So now yeah. what? Seriously, now what, Annabelle? Well, so I'm actually thinking, and I've actually had a few job offers, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say what they are now, um, but one of them is a spokesperson position. Another one is for a podcast. And then another one is to do potentially a podcast and my own show. Um, obviously, I'm not getting out of politics so forever. In fact, I do anticipate on running in the 2022 election cycle. But the thing is right now is what I'm realizing is there's so many people who just don't understand how to run for office. And so I think what I might do is actually like either put together a, like a booklet or something to really get normal people to run for office. Because what I found in the election process is that most people that are running are independently wealthy. And it really is a disadvantage to your quote unquote normal people like myself that have to do the grassroots fundraising, like to be able to compete with some of this. So people should kind of know like what are trusted vendors, like who, how does the process in itself work? And so that's something that I'm hoping to do kind of on the back end. But I've made good friends with a lot of candidates to include some of the new um, Republican nominees that have actually now won their seats and will be in office. So I think it's great um, just kind of seeing the new blood come in that's not a part of the establishment party. What what made you want to run in the first place? So I initially had gotten involved um, with a counter-trafficking organization that was working at the U.S.-Mexico border. And so I had done the media circuit and I actually turned down AC in medical school in order to do this. 
And the reason why I wanted to run is because I realized that, you know, what was happening in this country, especially with what I felt with the media, is that they weren't putting forward solutions, that they were talking about the super polarizing issues in an effort to help their ratings. And then you had actually people that were suffering. And there was this lack of, I think, normal understanding into how to fix problems. And so I figured that, you know, I'm not from D.C. I'll figure it out. And I did figure it out. In fact, I won my primary. Um, But how to actually run a successful campaign and kind of bring that new blood into D.C. And I like I still am a firm believer that we do need term limits. Like we should not have people in office for decades. Like that is part of what we have so wrong in this country right now. So I, I will say when I started running, I felt the same way. Term limits people up there established, stuck in. But as I started, as I got, went through the process, that's what changed my mind on term limits. Because I don't know if you felt the same thing as, as I did. Obviously, we ran in different parties, so mm-hmm. we had different experiences. But I always kind of felt the same way about, listen, some of these people need to go, and best way to do it, term limit them. But then as I was running, I started finding that there were so many people who were lobbyists, who were so deeply involved in, I mean, writing all the laws, et cetera, yeah. that I realized, you know what? The only people who know enough to actually say hell no to these lobbyists are the ones who've been around long enough to say, screw you, and and don't need to worry about it. And so I kind of switched my opinion on the term limits thing after a while. And I realized, you know what? If everybody is up there for two years, four years, six years, eight years, whatever the term limit ends up being, then the people who really will be running the show will be these lobbyists. And as much as I may disagree with the Chuck Grassley's of the world, at least I know that he's been around long enough that he's not, hopefully, hopefully not taking his cues from these lobbyists. Did you not notice that some of these inside power players, did you not see too many of those when you were running? No, I, there's definitely something to be learned from people that have just been there, obviously the wisdom, but I actually think part of the reason why I didn't make too many friends, um, especially through the process is because I think that outright we should have a ban on lobbying. And I think that well, that look at there, we be, found another area of agreement. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I didn't do. expect I, many of those. They may not come yeah. very often, but I agree with you there too. Yeah, like if they had a ban on lobbying, you would see a lot change, especially within the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry. I mean, it's insane to me how much. And the one thing I found out that I loved, there's this website called OpenSecrets.org, mm-hmm. and you can literally see the lobbyist connections to every single member of Congress. And that's one thing that I really found that. You know, with who I was as a candidate, I mean, I straight up had people sending me checks and I just wouldn't cash them. And so, you know, I may have lost my Why do you think we haven't made time. any of the changes yet? Why have those th- changes not been made? Because of the establishment politicos, <laughs> straight up. Um, these people, once they get into office, and and just to my understanding with how it works, is that you have lobbyists, they make those connections, they're quote-unquote friends. Obviously, if you go to D.C. and think you have friends, you're, you're clueless because no one ever just wants to be friends in Washington, D.C., um, without expecting something in return. But ultimately, you know, I don't think that these changes have occurred because if people stop the lobbying and actually fix the problems, they would be out of a job. And a lot of these people do make substantial money for their families or for themselves, um, basically by making those connections that they make in Washington, D.C., and they don't necessarily represent the interests of the people. And so with the candidate that I am and who I still am now is that I think that we do need a ban on lobbying. And I, with the amount of money that I saw pouring into even my race um, from corporate interests, you know, on behalf of other candidates that I was running against, it's pretty insane because there's this expectation that if you run for Congress, that you're not supposed to be paid by the campaign, right? It's almost frowned upon. But for people that are not independently wealthy, unless I had someone like my husband to really kind of support me financially through all this, I wouldn't have been able to run. And mind you, we're on a military salary. So like for myself, it does kind of bring a different perspective in saying, hey, there's an issue with lobbying. There's an issue with the amount of money that's poured into some of these seats. It shouldn't be into the millions of dollars to run for Congress, but it is because it's ultimately about advertisement and you have all these groups that come in and actually make money on running candidates. Not my team, but there were other groups so I came oh gosh, consultants. Other, yes. That's the job to have right there, girl. Literally, like you and I <laughs> that's where the money consulting is. business. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's where the money is. What was harder <laughs> for you? What was harder for you? Your primary or your general? Just on your on your psyche, on your energy level. Did I'd you find it more difficult in the primary or the general? 
I, I felt like it was more difficult in the primary. And I say that because it was people that I really, you know, once you meet your heroes, you're kind of like, wow, okay. Um, but I found that a lot of people within the Republican Party, especially, you know, with being that I was young and whatnot, I mean, they completely discredited me because of the fact that I wasn't from Washington, D.C. or because I wasn't an attorney. So, like, I felt like those stereotypes were something that I kind of just had to mentally get over. It's funny just- that we hate politicians until someone who's not a politician runs for an office and then we think they aren't qualified because they're Exa- not Exactly, not qualified. <laughs> and like some of the weird things that I would come across from members of, you know, my own party. Um, and I don't want to say like, you know, it wasn't, I, did, I really had no interaction with anyone actually from Washington, D.C. until after my primary. But I'm talking like even locally, um, the one weird thing was like people would ask me what, like, and this is just like such an off topic, but they asked me why I use my mom's name. And for me to have to be like, what do you mean? Why do I use my mom's last name? Like this, like, why are you guys focusing on that when like I'm talking about healthcare, for example? Like this well, is not- Well, in the not, primary, it's personal. It's only personal, right? Yeah, it's like personal. People. Yeah, it's like very personal attacks. And so I just felt that the primary is probably the hardest part of this this election. In the general election, I think a lot of people even still kind of discounted me because they're like, oh, well, you know, you're running against the former governor of Florida. They were saying that I was going to lose by 17 points. I didn't lose by 17 points. I barely lost by six points. And I was outspent probably about like four to one. So you uh, conceded. You did come much closer than most people expected you to come. So I definitely think that needs to be highlighted. Um, You did concede, though, pretty early on, right? On Tuesday or Wednesday morning, right away. I, it was, yeah, I, was, I conceded probably maybe like 30 minutes after the polls had opened, maybe an hour afterwards. Why so soon? Um, well, at that point, we basically had all of the votes coming in. And I did know for a fact that, like, at least with the supervisors of elections that I had there, I met with her, I trusted the system, I knew how the system was working. Um, and so for me at that point in time, I saw how the election was going. And I think at the time that I had conceded, I think maybe 80 something or 90, I want to say maybe upwards of 90% of the actual votes had come in. So there was no way that I could actually close that gap at that point. So we knew that it was just best to concede at that point. So tell me your thoughts on the president not conceding yet, or maybe maybe never, who knows, but him, I mean, we've certainly, the story of this week was count, 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 count for far too long. And then Saturday, it changed to being two separate stories, one on the left of Biden has won and people are excited about it. And then on parts of the right, a lot of the right being this election count is fraudulent and this is not over yet. Why how, Why was it so easy for you to concede and to, to trust the process, but not necessarily for other Republicans to be able to feel the same way about the national race? So I can definitely say, you know, I am, for, for starters, definitely one of those people that's now that's looking at some of the videos that have come out and just some of the, I'd say, evidence that they're presenting in court. And it definitely makes me not trust the system now. And I'm kind of at that point where, you know, when I was initially going through the election, then you find out, you know, the next two days after that, that there's a software called Dominion and there's these glitches. It's actually turning seats and numbers. I mean, you look at that and it's kind of just like, okay, so. Which state is that one in? Which state? Sometimes I have a hard time following some of these. uh, It's okay. So the software, the software Dominion was actually used in 30 states. And so Florida is actually one of them. Um, but the states that they're calling into question now are, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, I think Wisconsin, they actually just reversed an election um, and actually found that the software glitched and actually turned over a seat from a Democrat to a, a Republican. So what I'm finding now is that I would love to 100% trust the system. But now, given that we've seen some evidence come forward, it actually makes me not trust what's happening nationally. And the thing is, is I don't even necessarily think this is any more about party. This is about the fact that if there is a software glitch, and this is indeed causing this amount of numbers, we do need to collectively work to make sure that this doesn't happen in future elections. And so, so that's but if why Dominion was that. used in Florida, why are you not concerned about it having the same problem in your race? Well, <laughs> um, to be quite honest with you, I did talk to my consultant and I think, you know, depending on what happens within the next week, I can't say that I'm fully, you know, writing off possibly looking into it further, 
But I will say right now that just with how our system is run, and and I actually spoke to the supervisor of elections, Julie Marcus, who's in my district. And I did ask her, I was like, okay, so how does it work? So in Florida with absentee, it's a little bit different than, you know, the mail out ballots. Absentee, you have to have your ID. They check signatures. It's pretty, I'd say, safe in regards to actually bringing it and physically reporting it. Now, I also did make sure that, you know, there weren't dead people voting. So that was a huge concern. And I think a lot of people after they saw what happened in, in I think it was Pennsylvania and Michigan, I'm kind yeah, of I saw just something the on your rules. Twitter feed, and I was, I was, uh, let me see, I know, probably can't find it anymore, but you had retweeted something about dead voters um, yes. on your Twitter feed, and I couldn't help but think, you know, one of them, Lord, I'm never going to find it now, but you tweet a lot. It's on there, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I couldn't help but find, notice that some of the people who, okay, so for example, this particular Bernadine Adamski um, was shown to be dead. And yet she showed up. And these are names that are the same, but the people, names and birth years that are the same, but the people who died were in completely different states. And I can't help but think to myself, well, Lord, there's another Clay Aiken in the state of North Carolina who's like 90-something years old. These, I mean, some of these are just people with the same name in different I mean, states. I definitely think that that's a possibility, but then also too, like I actually looked through some of, I guess, the complaints that were coming in that have been filed in federal courts now. And the problem is, is that, you know, there's obviously at some point maybe going to be an incident where I'm sure there's another Ana Luna, like that definitely, there's someone else in the country like that. But when you have actual voter registry into the thousands, I think in PA currently they found 21,000 people that were on obituaries that actually voted in the election, that's a point where I'm like, okay, eyebrows are raised. And the thing is, is like, I think in general, like, yes, it is important for the American people to trust the process, to not get crazy, to let the courts do what they're going to do. But this does cause concern. And to be quite honest with you, it has caused me at least to possibly question whether or not the results of even my own election are okay until the actual Dominion glitch software is worked through. Well, listen, I'm I'm one of I'll probably get I get plenty of hate mail anyway, so it's bring it on. I am <laughs> I am a Democrat who does agree that if there are abnormalities and if there are things that have gone wrong in this election that are, are fraudulent, um, they should absolutely be looked into. I want. Joe Biden to be president, but I don't want him to be a president who people question the legitimacy of. So I want him to have won fairly. I guess what is confusing to even me when I say, listen, if there's proof of these things, let's find it, is that none of the evidence that has been brought into courts thus far has been even accepted by a lot of these judges as proof or evidence. I mean, in in Pennsylvania, the, the judge in the case there specifically looked at the attorney representing the Trump campaign and said, remember, you are a member of the bar. Now, be careful how you answer this question. And the the attorney even had to say, okay, yes, there are observers in the room. So if, you know, in the absence of evidence, and I, listen, there's always anecdotal evidence, and I have told my progressive friends, listen, if the case had gone, if the election had gone differently, there would be plenty of people on my side saying, oh, well, I know somebody who was turned away from the polls, or I know such and such was told that their name wasn't on the... There's always anecdotal evidence, but there's never been evidence of widespread or any sort of fraud that actually changed the results. And that seems to be the case right now, too. I mean, when you look in Georgia, what? how do you respond to Kelly... Leffler and Senator David Perdue calling on the Republican Secretary of State to resign, and the Republican Secretary of State saying straight up, I really want (laughs) Donald Trump to be president, but that's just not how it's, that's not how the votes are going in Georgia. I mean, at some point, is there, is it, does there come a point where you just say you can't trust anybody? So um, with what's happening in Georgia, I'd say right now that the main focus is that there is something that is called into question. That is a software company, Dominion, right? Like regardless of the outcome of this election, this software is glitching. And for me, it is problematic as a candidate because this has been used in 30 states and the glitches are essentially very influential in regards to some of the races that have been called into question now. And so when you have this software, you have this glitch and then you have the media 
working to collectively already call a winner, right? So like they're already calling Joe Biden the president-elect. But essentially, we're not even done counting ballots in some of these states. This is a big deal. And I think that that's why you're seeing most of the Republicans say, hey, look, this is not even necessarily about the president at this point. This is about the election process. And to be honest with you, no one ever anticipates an international pandemic. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing some of these problems is because this whole concept of vote by mail hasn't really been done before, right? Like we have absentee, but this was something that I think most people were voicing concerns early on for the 2020 election process. So it's something that we will have to work through. And frankly, I'm a firm believer that if we have the evidence, present it to the courts and let's work through the process. So in Georgia, to be to be clear, um, yeah. the Dominion was not used in any counties other than I think Gwinnett County. Does it give you any pause that so many local Republican officials are coming out and saying, listen, nothing shady is going on with these elections here. Like we mentioned, mentioned the Georgia Secretary of State, um, the, the city clerk in, a city clerk in Michigan uh, came out very specifically and said, listen, the count is being done and handled fairly and professionally here, these, mm-hmm. these accusations. What, what does it say to you that it's not just Democrats who are saying this? This is some, a lot of Republicans, too. Um, to be honest with you, I would have to look into that further, but I can tell you right Later. now that just from what I have witnessed and from what I'm seeing, it does bring me concern because I do feel like at a certain level, whether it has been intentional or it's a glitch, that the election process has been compromised in the areas that Dominion software was used. Okay, so I appreciate that you want to look into it, and I won't put you on the spot anymore for that. But let's assume, because I think I think even a lot of the people in the in the White House seem to have been beginning to assume that Vice President Biden is now President-elect Biden and will be sworn in in January. I want to ask you, as someone who has, we, we've spoken before, you know that I disagree with you on some policy issues. You know I'm a, in a different party than you are. Mm-hmm. What, how, do, how do we move forward beyond January 20th? Assuming Joe Biden is president of the United States, Kamala Harris is vice president. It looks right now as if, though, the Senate will be in Republican control, the House will be in Democrat control. If I look at maps— and I'm sure you've done the same thing around this country, there is a stark division beyond anything that has happened in either of our lives. The, the blue areas got bluer, and the red areas got redder. And in between, the suburbs were a little bit more closely split. But some of these places that voted for, some of these counties that voted for Barack Obama twice are going, went to Donald Trump by March. 50-point margins in some of these places, and a lot of the more urban, a lot of the more suburban areas went to Biden by huge margins also. Are we in for four years of gridlock and nothing getting done now? Um, How can either party, yours or mine, get anybody from the other side to be willing to listen to what they have to say? Or are we simply just now, from here on out, whoever turns out the most of their voters? Um, to be honest with you, is something that I've been, you know, especially in regards to the hyperpolarization that we're seeing, I do think, and there's actually a great documentary from people that have founded tech companies like Pinterest and Google and all of that. It's called Social Dilemma, and I think it's on Netflix. Um, what you're seeing right now is the way that me- the mainstream media works with technology and the way that the algorithms are on some of these social programs is that you are fed information, um, that you want to see because it creates that psychological addictive behavior that enables you to use the app and it helps with long-term generating money for some of these advertisers and these platforms. So I think what you're going to see is that if this election process is not combed through and solidified to where everyone believes that there is no evidence of fraud for this election, you still will see that to a more extreme extent because of the fact that over 50% of the country will believe that this election was stolen. Um, Moving forward, though, once that goes to the courts and December 14th is the day that it has to be done by, right? Before before we move on, because I want to hit that, whose responsibility is it to to clear that up? I mean, let's assume, um, and and again, we're making a lot of assumptions here, but I'm assuming, let's assume that Courts do not find that there was fraud, um, that if this goes to the Supreme Court, they do not side with 
um, overturning the results that, that we've seen thus far. Let's assume that these, that these structures that we have in place play out and Joe Biden still becomes the president of the United States. At that point, whose responsibility is it to say, okay, listen, guys, the President Trump has every right and had every right to question some of these things if he wanted to, to, to go in and do his legal challenges, to call for recounts. You know, legal challenges and recounts are part of the process. But after playing all those hands, Joe Biden still won. Whose responsibility is it at that point to say, okay, folks, Joe Biden didn't steal the election. There wasn't fraud. We played out all of these, these structures, did what they were supposed to do. He is the president. Is that, is that a Republican responsibility to, to say to their base, let's get off the QAnon stuff? So there would best definitely have to be, I think, something from the president himself, Donald Trump. So um, there is this formality. Do you have faith that'll happen? I, I, I will say this, you know, I have spoken to Donald Trump and I have actually on several occasions, you know, either indirectly spoken with him and or met members that work in, in the White House. And I will say this, if it's a fair election, that's one thing. Um, and I do have faith that the president will execute his job um, as according to the U.S. Constitution and ultimately rightfully in the best interest of the American people. But I will say this. Right now, because of, you know, what, what we were talking about earlier, even with just Dominion, it is calling into question what's happening. And so ultimately, it would have to be a statement in order to, I think, calm um, from the president. But I think right now with what we're seeing, it will have to go to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the Supreme Court is the law of the land. It's the last safety measure that we have, you know, in place in a, in a constitutional republic to ensure that, you know, the sanctity of the election process is kept fair. Does and that so, concern you that, that, I mean, that, you know, the whole point of the Supreme Court, especially conservative views of the Supreme Court, and, and we've seen thus far, even in the way they have rejected um, the cases that they've rejected at the Supreme Court level um, this year alone, they overturned cases in Wisconsin where a federal judge inserted himself into Wisconsin's election procedure. They overturned any cases. They, they refused to take any cases where the state had made decisions. Conservative, the conservative view at the, at the Supreme Court has always been courts don't have a place in deciding elections. Elections are, are left up to the states to do. Every state gets to determine how to run its own elections, and the federal government doesn't have a role in that. Does it concern you that maybe the Supreme Court would have to overturn centuries of precedent to say, okay, no, this time we, we do have a role in it? Um, I definitely do appreciate, and I always will be a firm believer that it's always best for the states to decide. But in the event that we do have a glitch that's causing votes to move over in the way that we've seen, um, I do think that the Supreme Court is really that safety measure that's in effect to say, okay, these are people that have been in in the legal proceedings as justices for years. They have experienced some of the Supreme Court justices that are currently on the bench right now, like Kavanaugh and even Amy, Co Amy Barrett, um, were actually around during the Gore-Bush recount. And so these people do know how to handle these situations. And ultimately— Well, they were partisans then also. I mean, John Roberts himself was one of— was on Bush's team uh, they, in that case, in that particular case in 2000. So, I mean, but I mean, you keep coming back to the glitches and I guess I just want to, I mean, make it sort of unequivocally clear that, that the officials in Michigan have very specifically said that these Dominion software glitches were not software glitches. They were caused by human error, county clerks, the Department of State there, they were have all said they were isolated cases in Georgia, the secretary. So if the state is saying these glitches were human error, they have been accounted for, they have been fixed. If the state has been saying these were not software glitches and we have handled this within our state, what, what role does the Supreme Court have in that other than to just say, okay, well, Donald Trump will give you what you want. I mean, I can't imagine that's what you're... No, 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 no. The Supreme Court in no way, shape, or form, um, I think, would ever even say that. They would basically go on evidence. And I mean, you, I'm sure, as you know, bringing evidence and then actually causing a decision to be ruled on with the Supreme Court. 
um, is a long process and you have to have literally damning evidence. But what I will say is that, you know, in, in places like Michigan and PA and Wisconsin and Georgia and Arizona, certain places like Georgia, I know for sure there's going to be a recount. That one's that they've already said is right. going to be taking place. Course, um, I sure. know As that in PA, yeah, in PA, there's going to be an audit. In Michigan, I think that there's going to be an audit. So there's different places around the country that are handling it differently. No, absolutely. Um, and I think, and I would, as a Democrat, would say, by all means, I'm comfortable with an audit. I'm comfortable with a recount. But if those audits show that there was, that that the officials in Michigan did not, were, were, were accurate and were telling the truth when they said, no, these issues we have accounted for, we have fixed them. Is that not enough? Or do at, at, at what point? I mean, listen, I, I can't. Anybody, any Democrat who who tries to claim that Democrats would not be looking for every opportunity in in the weeks after is probably not being intellectually honest. Yes, if we had lost, we would be saying, "Hold in a second, wait a second, let's check this, let's audit this, let's recount this, let's make sure." That. I get that, and it's just not intellectually honest to say that we wouldn't. But at some point. There comes a there comes a, pl- a point where you have to say, okay, they've been audited. It's been recounted. We've checked. The officials have said that these these errors were fixed. Officials from our own party have said these errors were fixed. Why take? I mean, I, I, listen. I'll be honest. I think that more than likely the Supreme Court just says, no, we're not going to take this case. At that point, is it done? I, if the Supreme Court at that point, you know, however they rule, then that's how the Supreme Court is going to rule. And I think at that point, that's when, you know, that's when President Trump really essentially decides what he's going to say, right? But the Supreme Court is ultimately the the last firewall that we have. And I do trust the And you're the comfortable Court, with every four years the Supreme Court having to make that decision? Well, no. I think that the Supreme Court, and that's exactly why they can choose to take cases or throw the cases out. Um, I think that this is a very special circumstance, right? Like COVID has never happened before in the United States. And ultimately, part of the reason why we're seeing this happen is because the in many states, the issues that we're having are the mail-in ballots, right, or the ballot drops. Um, in past circumstances, this hasn't been something that we've had to address. But then also, too, when you're seeing some of these glitches, and I hate to go back to it because I know I've mentioned about 30 times, um, these glitches have actually like resulted okay, in certain it. states. Yeah, these glitches seriously have resulted in like different races around the country actually reversing the races. In fact, two congressional seats went to Republicans because they found out that the software glitched and actually overcounted votes for Democrats. So either way, we have to look into this. Either way, we're going to have to make sure that this never happens again, because to be quite honest with you, I don't think America can afford to go through this in 2024. So we have to ensure that it's correctly done this time. Why are you a Republican? I am a Republican because, and actually on two separate instances. So the first one is, is that um, at an early age, my mom obviously had me and she definitely was asked by my father to go to an abortion clinic and, and have me aborted. Um, my mom and I really very much so struggled. And ultimately for me, the whole concept of why, and this is probably a separate podcast topic, but why I'm pro-life, mm-hmm. um, is because of that. I saw what my family went through. I've had a lot of friends that have had abortions and they ultimately, um, go forward and they definitely deal with some level of, I think, emotional pain because of that. Um, later on, I met my husband and my husband is actually a byproduct of rape. Him and his twin brother are. So that's the first, I think, number one issue for me. But then the second thing would be, you know, with how I grew up, I ultimately, by the time I was nine, I was involved in an armed robbery. I survived it. And then at 16, one of the six high schools I went to, there was a gang shooting on campus. I survived that too. And then when I joined the military to kind of get away from everything, not only was my husband shot in Afghanistan, but um, I had a home invasion when I was stationed in Missouri. And for me, those experiences really taught me that there are bad people in the world and that this whole concept of arguing about whether or not someone should have their right to own a firearm, I lived through all these awful things. And yet it was me choosing to use a firearm to protect myself because ultimately I do believe that there's a certain amount of evil in people and it was never those people that were good that were doing things wrong. It was the bad people. And ultimately the only time I was ever to really deal with like some of the trauma that I went through with the break-in is actually got my concealed carry. And when I found that I was talking about protecting myself with firearms, I was called a terrorist. I was called a baby killer. I mean, and that was wrong. And so Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer in the second amendment and also I'm pro-life. 
Okay. I mean, listen, I, I can't argue with those two things. I don't, I don't share the same position, but person's views on pro on, on a woman's right to choose or their views on the second amendment certainly do tend to fall. If your views tend to fall into the, to the Republican category, yes. what are some things that you don't agree with Republicans on? Um, I think that the lobbying is a huge issue. I am for term limits. Um, so I would, I think that we should ban lobbying. I think that we should get term limits passed, not just for Congress, but for Senate and then everyone else in between, because what you'll see is just like you said, the lobbyists are there for a long time. Whereas Congress switches out every two years, you have another race to run. And I believe that that's part of the problem. And then ultimately, too, I think the amount of money that's poured into races sometimes is insurmountable. And so I don't know if anyone's listening to this has ever been a Boy Scout, but they have something called the Pinewood Derby. And the Pinewood Mm -hmm. Derby is everyone's (laughs) given a certain block and you have to make the block work, right? Given what you're given. And then you race. And I think that there should be caps on spending for congressional and Senate seats because ultimately... If you are, you know, independently wealthy um, versus someone like myself who was running basically a grassroots campaign and still nonetheless with hard work, I was able to basically outraise my opponents. Um, most of the time that I could be spent campaigning, I'm spending on the phones making money Ugh, so that I can pay for my time. campaign. Yeah, call time. And that's wrong. That's not what it's supposed to be focused on. So that's, I mean, so you do, I asked you what you disagreed with them on. So you know that that's Citizens United is something that I think Democrats tend to believe was wrongly decided at the Supreme Court, and Republicans tend to believe was rightly decided at the Supreme Court that money is speech, and therefore money should be able to be spent as much as possible in election campaigns. Um, so you run counter there. What about economic policy? What about um, taxes and spending and some of the some of the other issues that aren't as sexy to talk about? The, re- the reason I ask is because I, even though I don't agree with them, I don't agree with you on them. I will concede that a woman's right to choose or issues or or feelings about the Second Amendment are certainly valid reasons to side with the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. I am a proponent of a woman's right to choose. I think that should be decided between her and her doctor. I don't have any disrespect for you because you don't agree with me. I'll vote for a Democrat because that's an important issue to me. You'll vote for a Republican. What concerns me, and I wonder if it concerns you the same, is that there are a lot of people who, I mean, that tribalism is a real thing in this country now. And there are a lot of people who have chosen their party based on one or two issues, based on one or two beliefs, but they don't necessarily agree with that particular party for a whole slew of other things, but they vote you know, either against their own interests or they vote on one issue and and demonize the other party for that that reason. Do you think that that there are a lot of people who vote for Republicans because they have just one thing in agreement with them and maybe not the rest? Well, I think right now what a lot of people are are really voting on a Republican ticket for is because most people that I came across, um, especially in doing the outreach with the Hispanic demographic, and then also to um, even talking with other candidates that have experienced socialism, whether it was fleeing from other countries, when you see that really kind of being a platform, whether they call it democratic socialism or not, really being something that's I think pushed for Can you legislative tell me what that reasons. Would look like? What what so, what is socialist in in what what type of socialism is it that you feel? the Democratic Party is going to push on. So I I think that it's necessarily, it's probably more or less the utopian perspective that I believe that people like AOC push and saying that, okay, look, you should have the government come come forward and and if you just stick with me for a second and provide, for example, health care, right? I think what's alarming to me is that when you talk with people, first of all, health care should be affordable, but I would never trust the federal government to do that, especially when the federal government can't even count ballots appropriately right now, right? So, like, you have this whole concept Well, the federal government isn't counting them. The state governments are, but go state government for now, <laughs> yes. But what you have is that you have these people that are saying, okay, we want federally, for federal government health care, right? But you look at what's happening in other countries around the world, for example, Canada, where people do have socialized medicine, and they're essentially having to come to the United States to pay out of pocket because their government won't authorize certain surgeries— 
Um, it's a waiting list for some of these procedures. And ultimately, they're not getting as good of health care as they are from places like the United States where it's independent. Now, here's the problem. So I would make you, so I just I would I would just combat that or I would rebut that by saying I think those are anecdotal issues. And if you, my, my son's mother is Canadian, that entire side of the family is Canadian, and even the conservatives amongst them, of the, of the family, would say they wouldn't trade their Canadian healthcare system for anything. In the UK, that's the third rail. Touching the NHS in the UK is something that no party would dare try to do because it's something that's loved by all in that country. So I guess what, the reason I bring that up is because I, I, I get confused sometimes when I hear people say that they're afraid of socialism. And I want to know what it looks like because I would argue that you've been, you've been attacked by Democrats, I would guess you've been attacked by Democrats as someone who wants to give a gun to everybody who wants one or who wants guns, all teachers to carry guns or who wants all kindergartners to carry guns. And that's bullshit, right? Like you don't want kindergartners walking to school with guns in their pockets, obviously. Correct, that's yeah. just <laughs> hyperbole and bullshit. And my party throws it at your party far more than I'm comfortable with. But I would argue that as much as you would say that that's bullshit, <laughs> you don't want kindergartners going to school with guns, that the socialism argument is a similar type attack from the right to the left. Because I don't believe that socialism is a part of any party's platform. It's certainly not a part of Joe Biden's platform. And, and I find that there's just a lot of hyperbole thrown about on both sides. So if we were to get rid of that, if we were to say, okay, listen, as a Democrat, you don't know me that well, but you've t we've talked a few times. I think you think that I hope you think that I'm a somewhat reasonable person. I don't want the, I don't want a nanny state either, <laughs> you know. But you know, well, isn't, starts, isn't there a gray area here? Well, so the thing is, is it starts with dissocialized healthcare, right? And then ultimately, what then from a Republican perspective is that we worry about is that you have people that are promised free socialized healthcare. That means an increase in taxes. That means businesses closing down because they might not necessarily be able to support. And then you have this whole concept that no one talks about two things. One, balancing the budget. And then two, the fact that if we go to socialized healthcare, then that actually will pull from the social security pot of which we're already having an issue with because no one talks about the fact that there are so many people retiring that people oh, that girl, do pay with social you. security, I'm with you. like you and myself, social security needs help. It needs help. And ultimately people and the older generation, especially one, they're not realizing that every, like you and I, when we pay into social security, we're actually paying for someone else's right. social security. We're not going to actually be able to tap into that. So there's been this issue created where we cannot literally essentially afford to provide Medicare for all. And then you talk about, okay, so then another, I, I guess, talking um, platform for most Democrats is the fact that they want to give amnesty to illegals. So you have 22 estimated million people that are Again, here illegally. Never heard Never heard, never heard a Democrat say they want to give amnesty to illegals, but I'm going to let you keep talking. Okay, so well, I, heard, I did I've find heard, that— I've heard plenty of them say that they would like to have a pathway to citizenship for those who are already here, but I have not seen anybody so, say yeah, amnesty I've for heard the pathway of citizenship for DACA, but for illegals, I did—I believe it was Joe Biden that actually said that. So it was also Ronald Reagan, be, so we just, we, just so, yeah, just so we're yes, clear, Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan said it too. Yes, and Ronald Reagan <laughs> actually did give a blanket amnesty to illegals, and that's something that, for me, here's what's concerning on that, is that that is, one, incentivizing people to come here the, correct, the wrong way, and then ultimately, that's not healthy because there are bad things that happen when people come here illegally, period. Like, that's something that... When you are having to operate in a market that basically makes you either basically clean for cash and or you're having to operate in the basically the black market, it's not safe. A lot of these people don't have access to law enforcement. A lot of these people right. are exploited. So, so and the then, argument for having people come out of it not feeling like they have to be hidden, that would be something you would agree with? Like people well, shouldn't have to be afraid because to call the police because they might get arrested? I mean, isn't that, isn't well, that an so argument that, for allowing them to be here legally? But the, pro the, but the problem is, is if you blanket wave these people in, right? You have then 22 plus million people that are now American citizens not having to wait through the process. It is not fair to those that have actually waited to come here. Right, and, and I think that most of the, for the future. And I, think, and I don't know that I disagree with you on that. I think most Democrats who I have heard speak about this reasonably have said, go to the back of the line, 
to be a citizen, but come out of the shadows now. I mean, you're you're already eating at our well, restaurants. So you're shopping from our sto- from our stores. You're paying sales tax, etc. We want you to be able to not feel like you have to hide. So come well, out of the shadows now and follow the process correctly and get to the back of the line. Would that not be a compromise? Well, here's here's the problem with that, right? So like, and this is, mind you, completely separate from DACA. This is, I'm talking illegal, I'm not talking DACA recipients, two separate issues. Um, the reason why, and I think this is in part what's been frustrating for someone that has worked on immigration issues, and like we're talking about it right now, is for example, in 2016, when Republicans had control of the House, and President Trump at the time submitted his um, comprehensive immigration reform bill, there was something that was key in that, right? And it was basically a automated, from my understanding, um, digitally visa renewal system, right? A lot of the reason why we have people here illegally is because the visa overstays. But because of the right. fact that there was actually a request for funding for the wall on the southern border, they denied that from being passed. And, going, and that literally had a solution for people that had actually something that was an automatic, uh, automated Um, work visa system in general. So like people that wanted to come here to work seasonally could get work visas and not have to do it under the table, but that was shot down. And so I have thought about these issues. And I think that in general, when you look to automatically blanket clearance, 22 million illegal people here, our infrastructure as it stands right now with the social security system, we cannot literally afford that. So you're talking about that. Then you have the promises of, you know, doing a nationwide or a federal government mandated healthcare system. It essentially would, in my opinion, be terrible for the economy. And ultimately, it's not fair to those people that have waited to come Wouldn't here. Wouldn't it be I actually, a good thing for Social Security, though, to have all these people who are getting paid illegally all of a sudden be paying into Social Security and paying for those folks who are retiring now? I mean, if you're here illegally, you're not getting paid over the table, so to speak. So you're I not paying into Social Security as much. If you're able to pay into Social Security, doesn't that help? I don't think so because all you're doing is increasing the numbers of recipients for it. Yeah, but and right but, now, but, but right now we. But you just admitted the people who are getting it now, the recipients today, are being paid by the workers of today. So correct. So if the recipients of today start getting paid by 11 million more people <laughs> who are now able to be in the workforce and pay into Social Security, doesn't that help them? A little bit more? I think all it would do is increase the numbers. And then you have the argument of, so these people are here now. And then ultimately what happens with the whole argument for Medicare for all. Because then that's the top What would you be willing to give in order to get what you want? Because that's Um, really what we're talking about come January, right? We're talking about a Republican-controlled Senate, a Democrat-controlled House. At some point, people are going to have to say... If I want anything that I want, I'm going to have to give something the other side wants. Do you think we're capable of doing that anymore? Um, I would say on the topic of illegal immigration, that's probably a no-go for most Republicans, to include myself, just because of the long-term implications. But I will say that there has, on multiple occasions, been a solution for DACA recipients, right? And that has been shot down, I think, because it included wall funding. I think that that's something that we should take care of, right? So what about health care? What about so healthcare? Healthcare what in general. What would you give in order to get something you wanted? So for healthcare, I think part of the solution would be to create competitive markets. So I believe that what should happen is one, you need to get the pharmaceutical lobbyists and the healthcare lobbyists out of Washington D.C. Period. Then what you need to do is incentivize some of these small smaller businesses, whether they are upstart or not, um, for some of these healthcare insurance industries or whatever it might be, um, you give them basically a grace period so that they can come become competitive with some of these monopolies that currently exist within the healthcare system. And so whether that is not basically having them pay taxes for the first upstart year that they have, and then that way they can grow, and then that way they can create better coverage at a more affordable price, that's really my perspective on how you would fix a healthcare system. It's absolutely- So if you want competition- Yes. Um, uh, Medicare for all, which has been pro- been a, a big platform plank for AOC, for Bernie Sanders, for quite a few Democrats on the l- lefter wing of the party. Um, Sherrod Brown, who's the Democrat senator from Ohio, a red state, he continues to win in a red state. Um, he has a different perspective, which I think some might consider a compromise. He essentially calls it Medicare for anyone who wants it. In other words instead of having to wait until you're a certain age to, to buy into medic to, to enroll in Medicare, you'd be able to buy into it at a younger age. That would not be Medicare for all. It wouldn't be mandated. It would be an offer. 
Um, but it would provide competition because arguably, I guess, that would be a lower rate of entry and it would force some of these pharmaceutical companies and it would force some of these um, healthcare insur- health insurance companies to lower their rates to be competitive. Is that the type of compromise you could go for? I would honestly have to see the entire platform and suggestions for that. And the reason I say that is because, to my understanding, when you open the Medicare for All up to more people, it not taps all, in, not Medicare for All, Medicare those, for those anyone opting, else who wants it. Yeah, and let people opting, buy into it. Yeah, those opting into it. Um, I think at that point in time, to my understanding, that actually then taps into the Social Security bucket. So I would have to look into that more. But I will say this: right now, it's sh- it should be that Americans can afford healthcare and it's not. And so I think that that's something that we as a nation have to look at. And in general, I will say this, it does not make Republicans feel comfortable, or I think American citizens in general feel comfortable, especially being that, you know, 70 plus million people voted for President Trump. And you have AOC going out there and saying, we need to come up with a list of people that supported this president. That is wrong. Like, that is so wrong to threaten these people's livelihoods. Now, Listen, I'm not going to disagree with you, yeah. but I will. Uh, but I am going to give you shit for changing the subject because I appreciate the fact that you won't commit to a— <laughs> I, can, I can appreciate the fact that you won't commit to a policy initiative without researching it. I'll give you that. But I feel like I, I lo- people lose me when they go from talking like we have this really great— intelligent discussion about policy here and we can disagree and I would love to think and I want you to come back at some point after you've looked into the Medicare for everyone option idea I will even send you info on it but um, we can disagree but I feel like both sides lose their arguments at least with me when they switch away from the policy stuff and start talking about the bullshit politics stuff. Because I'm not going to disagree with you on the politics being played, but I am going to say we all as Americans say that we hate that type of bullshit strategy, but we cling to it whenever we aren't winning our argument or whenever well, we feel no, no, like no. we're not, we don't have the, one. No, the thing is, is that you, if you're talking about compromise, compromise is willing to trust the other side that they will fulfill their. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so what I'm saying is that when you have people that say that they want to make compromises and people that are very influential within their own party, right. Um, when you have those people making those arguments and then turn around and saying that we're going to put a list together, that's where you lose the compromise. That's where you I lose the I don't disagree with to, that. Yeah. But at some point, someone's got to say, we're going to, I mean, there's a six sticks and stones type of argument. I want to start a sticks and stones pack that essentially says, if it's not actually actions, if it's just words and talk and bullshit, I just don't feel like we, we need to ignore it at some point. Well, and, and I, would I would say, say that, but they actually have a, a website. Yeah, but the <laughs> like I've actually not, seen a website. Right, but it's not stopping. But the website, as nasty as it might be, as, as ill-advised as it might be, doesn't have to stop reasonable problem solvers from actually getting things done. It can make us mad. We can roll our eyes at it. But it doesn't have to stop us from getting things done unless we want it to. And I think that's, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for almost, it feels like uh, this year has felt like two years, but we've been doing it for a while. And the the question that we ask is, how the heck are we going to get along? And I am absolutely sure that I know the answer to it now. And the truth <laughs> is, but, but, and the, tr- the truth is we have to want to. And I think that there's not a lot of motivation from people on many sides to want to get along because you and I can have a nice conversation and disagree. And if we stayed on this conversation for a lot longer, I think we'd probably, if we were both willing, we'd find a way for you to give a little bit, me to give a little bit and find a solution. But I'm not sure if I believe, and I bet you agree with me, I'm not sure if I believe that people in DC at this moment actually want to get along. I feel like a lot of folks on both sides feel it behooves them to, instead of getting anything done, just scream and shout and blame the other side. And I mean, there has been, it's very, it's very polarized right now, but I think it starts getting fixed by, and I, and I do hold the media accountable for this, right? Like if you actually had this broadcasted, I think on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, I think that it would change it, right? Because you actually have people that are having respectful conversations and bringing forth solutions, but you're not finding that on any of these network stations because what helps with the ratings is the 
the polarization and those quick jabs. And then ultimately what ends up happening is they don't want to cover the successes, I think, of any party, right? Like you're not going to see. Right. But Anna, I'm, I'm agreeing with you yeah. and saying you're right. But I can't control what they do. I can only control what I do. And Correct. you can only control what you do. So I personally make the commitment to say, I'm going to stop blaming them because I can't stop them from doing what they're going to do. I'm just going to start doing, if I want politics to change, I have to start changing the way I talk about them. And therefore, I'm going to have a conversation with you like this. It's going to piss off some Democrats because I wasn't as mean to you as they want me to be. And it'll piss, <laughs> off, and it'll piss off some Republicans, plenty of them, because I pushed you on things that they didn't want me to push you on. But the truth is, if we want things to be different, and I believe you do, we may have a different means to get there. We may have, have disagreements on what will make things better. But if we want things to get better, we have to start acting like we want them to get better instead of saying, well, it's not my fault, it's the other side's. And Correct. I think that I think, I think that you I think we agree. There, yeah. Right? yeah, we agree on that one. And I think that if more people again talked about solutions, that you know, we'd be putting DC out of out of their jobs, right? It's it's insane to me that you have people literally paid and then putting forth legislation, even like for example, on topics of the VA disability rating system. Here's one thing that I found insanely frustrating, and we will talk about healthcare, right? So you have the VA that's set up for military members. There's a lot of good intention with the VA and they're not terrible, but I will tell you that when you have organizations like Monsanto who now work in the farming industry and these corporations became overnight billionaires because they manufactured Agent Orange, which is a known carcinogen and has exposed Vietnam veterans to cancer and who knows what the long-term effects were on their health and their genetics and birth defects. Um, and yet you have people that are trying to get money from the federal government because they were exposed to this awful thing that literally is causing them to die now. And you have the VA not doing anything sitting on their hands and you have legislators not putting forward legislation because they're afraid of Monsanto. That's a problem. And what so- What do you think the Republican Party stands for? What do you think if it is its biggest, if, it had, if you had to encapsulate what the Republican Party stands for in no more than two sentences, what would it be? Okay, I would say limited taxes, the Second Amendment, um, big government out of your lives, and basically an emphasis on the responsibility of the individual to to govern themselves. Okay, that was a lot more than two sentences, so we're going to work on counting at some point. But <laughs> yeah. I would argue that the Democrat Party, and I think it's been disagreed with by, I mean, certainly the messaging has not been strong enough, but the Democrat Party is not a party of big government, but I believe it's a party that uses government to protect individual citizens from the encroachment of things like Monsanto. You know, Teddy Roosevelt would have been a Democrat today. He was a trust buster. He, was a, he went after big corporations. He's probably the most liberal president we've ever had. He's Bernie Sanders' icon, as a matter of fact. And the reason I bring that up is because when you say things like, when you talk about Monsanto, when you talk about lobbying, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Anna. Don't take this as an insult. I think it's a compliment. But you sound a lot like a Democrat. <laughs> well, and, so I think, I wonder, <laughs> and so I wonder if and so I wonder if it goes back to the tribal thing that we have chosen. A lot of people have chosen their parties based on one or two particular things. Certainly it's perfectly fair for you to choose the Republican Party because of their uh, you know, their beliefs on woman's right to choose or gun control or Second Amendment stuff. But we don't fit. Nobody, I don't buy all of my clothes from the same store. And Correct. I don't think you do e either. And we, but we have, we start, we've started to treat our political parties like we treat our sports teams. Like I'm a Carolina fan, no matter what, even when they suck, right? Well, I think, I That's think okay that, with sports, but is it okay with politics? Well, I think right now that what you're seeing is there were a lot of candidates that ran even against Republican incumbents that were establishment Republican incumbents that were not doing right by the American people. And so I feel like there is new blood in Washington, D.C. and that was needed. And I feel like my platform and my views is what the Republican Party should be. Um, now, there are a lot of Republicans that agree with me that the lobbying is a problem and that, in fact, you know, Matt Gates does not take any lobbying money. And I actually had this conversation with him, and he's like, honestly, part of the problem in D.C. is the lobbyist, is the PAC. So, he doesn't take so that. If, so if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris tried to restrict lobbying, if they tried to cut the amount of funding and money that was, was used 
in political campaigns. Do you think Matt Gates would go along with it and support it? Or do you think, I think for his that, political I think, expediency, he'd say, boo? I think Matt Gates is definitely an independent thinker, and he's gone even against um, most establishment Republicans for lobbying and legislation. And so I think that if presented with that, if they were to get rid of lobbying altogether, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I don't see why he would oppose it because he already at this point doesn't take PAC money and he doesn't approve of the lobbying in D.C. And he actually talks about it on his HBO documentary, The Swamp. Tony from Pittsburgh, I want to get to our quick fire questions because I, I swear we could turn this into two episodes. Um, <laughs> I'm so fa- I love talking. I mean, I, I specifically told the producers this week that I wanted to speak with a Republican um, because we spoke with a Democrat last week. And I told them I want to speak with a Republican who believes firmly in what they believe in, but who's not died in the wool crazy. And you were the first name that came <laughs> to everybody's mind. And I appreciate having a conversation. Listen, I don't have to agree with you. Um, but I do think that I appreciate being able to have a conversation where we can agree to disagree and sometimes find agreement. So God bless you for that, Anna. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Tony from Pittsburgh, in our quick fire round, Tony from Pittsburgh asked, do we need more stimulus? Um, right now, I'd say that the economy, last time I checked, was going up. And so I think we're okay right now. Um, But I do kind of question what's going to happen because I do know that Joe Biden is saying, okay, we need to lock it back down. And frankly, uh, Feinstein actually just did a tweet yesterday saying that there's, you know, flare-ups of COVID. Okay, hold on now, girl. Hold on now, girl. We just talked talked about trying to do this by doing what's right, not what's politically expedient. Answer the the question without saying how bad the other party is going to screw things up in your mind. Right now, I think that we are okay with not doing another stimulus. For now. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I'm not going to ask that question because I already know the answer. I know your answer to it. Kim from Salt Lake City asks, is it too late for either side to ever trust the results again? Oh, that one's a tough one. Um, right now, December 14th will determine, and I think that it's going to be huge um, on that outcome. So, can we do a to-be-determined to on that one? We're going to have you back. We're going to hold you to yeah, it. Yeah, um, to-be-determined on that one. Jonas from Vegas asks, is it the job of Democrats or the Republicans to offer the olive branch first? Um, I think it would be the job of both. Okay, fair. I'll take that. Um, George from Lansing asks, what should be the Republican Party's main priority now? It, like future goals? Either way you want to answer it. Either way you want to answer it, I'll ask you the other one after you've answered it, the first one. Um, I think that it's really important right now for the Republican Party to help stand up um, fresh faces and new candidates. So there have been a couple of members that have been better than I think a whole as a Republican Party on doing outreach. And Elise Stefanik has been one of them. But I think right now it is really important, especially being that the Democrats are good at getting new blood in and and the whole branding, but the Republicans not so much. And so I think we need to rebrand. It's funny that you say that, and I I didn't mean to laugh at your answer, but I always think it's funny because both of us, both parties always seem to believe the other party does a better job at one particular thing. I think if you asked a lot of Democrats, they would argue that the Democrat Party has not done a very good job of getting new blood in because— Look who's in charge in both the House and the Senate right now when it comes well, to leadership. So it, it, I always think that Republicans do a better job of messaging strategy. I would bet you think Democrats do a better job. Well, I, I know right now for a fact that most of the people that you saw run and win, especially most of the women that run won their GOP races recently, actually did it on their own. And so I think that people in general, like if you don't like something that you're seeing, get involved. The most frustrating thing I have as a candidate is people, you know, ask me, how can I help? Well, just do it. Like get active, reach out to your local party. Um, for us, it's definitely been, I think most of these women, and I absolutely love it because I love go-getters and these women are go-getters. They saw something they didn't like, they didn't agree with, so they ran for office and they won. Okay, Gina, for last one. Gina from Austin asks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to amend your a question, Gina, so forgive me. I'm going to add something to it. Gina from Austin asks, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, or Matt Gates? Like in what context? <laughs> well, I think she was asking, I added Matt Gates' name to it, but I think she asked Ted Cruz or Donald Trump Jr. I think she was asking for, oh, for the 2024? nominee for 2024. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I say Jr. and Gates on ticket together. VP okay. and president, that'd be good. Okay, I'd be happy to run against that. <laughs> <laughs> 
2024, yeah. I'd say okay. like you get president and VP. <laughs> Anna, Anna um, how the heck are we going to get along? It starts with conversations, <laughs> like right here. I agree. And, and I cannot thank you enough for being willing to do it. I still think that there are more things that you agree with Democrats on than you want you would want your next I, primary opponent to ever know about. I, <laughs> so we'll, no, we'll leave no. this up until it's until you run again, and we'll take it, it down. Closes, no, no, it closes <laughs> with saying, I am a Republican, but I am what the Republican Party thinks should be, which is representative of the people and someone who doesn't believe in corporate corporate control. Okay, I, I'll, get, I'll agree with you on that last line for sure. So, <laughs> Ana Paulina Luna, thank you so much for joining us this week, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along?